The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Gaia, publisher of The Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour, Mike Green, whom a lot of you know from his various media appearances, podcasts, as well as, of course, here on Twitter. Mike, for those who don't know your background, let's do a little origin story on who you are, how'd you get interested and involved in markets, and what are you doing now? I became interested in markets in the mid-1980s. was fortunate enough to read some of the arguments behind what was going on in 1987. had managed to convince my parents that they should withdraw their funds from the stock market and was therefore very excited to pretend to be sick on the morning of October 17th, 1987. Coincidentally, about three weeks later, I got my acceptance to the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School of Business as an undergrad, went there had you know fantastic experience graduated into the early 1990s and you know while actually at Wharton I had the opportunity to work for Spearlays and Kellogg up in New York and so I was trading crude oil futures during the time that Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait came out said you know what that was actually really interesting but actually kind of boring to be in the pits those of you who have seen me physically know I'm a big guy the world of open outcry used to recruit big guys who were actually quite good at math but for me it was ultimately much more about a holistic understanding, went into management consulting, did in particular M&A consulting for a period of time, and then came out of that recognizing that there was an opportunity to codify some of the information that I had built up over that time period into a series of software packages targeted at corporate finance departments, and then ultimately to public market participants. That became the backbone of a system of evaluation tools that was ultimately acquired by a firm called Holt and in turn acquired by Credit Suisse in 1999-2000. I transitioned to the public markets in 1999 with the sale of Holt. I had done kind of a survey and looked at the nonsense of the dot-com cycle and said, you know, the principles of valuation and Ben Graham and understanding discounted cash flows are where it's at. And so looked at the world of small cap value, went to one of my clients in that space, joined as an analyst, and then immediately promoted to a portfolio manager, but discovered that I got my ass kicked basically for this last six months of the dot-com cycle as valuation made no sense whatsoever, and actually worked against you, very similar to the environment that existed in 2020, 2021, by the way. The, let's see, managed separate accounts, then mutual funds, then hedge funds, ultimately for a firm called Canyon Partners, founded and ran their New York office, built that from a small allocation to a team of about 15 people running about $5 billion. 
and then I was tapped by the Soros family to run an external allocation firm called Ice Farm Capital. Fantastic illustration that the business of managing money is not the same thing as managing money. So with my tail between my legs at the end of 2016, I took a sabbatical and spent a lot of time thinking about markets and market structure and how things had changed and what was then about 20 years in the market. Came out of that with some insights, went to manage Peter Thiel's capital for a period of time, and then ultimately came out of the hedge fund space and into the ETF space, You know, which is kind of where you guys have seen me emerge in the public sphere. So when I was when I was working for Peter, for example, I was very much behind a compliance wall. In my role at Simplify, I'm much more of a public figure. I have the ability to speak openly, et cetera. So long story short, you know, managing across products, across assets, always have had kind of a valuation bent and evaluation focus. But a lot of my work has led me to understand that the market structure may make many of those insights quite difficult right now. Okay. There's a lot that I wanna I wanna take this conversation, a lot of places I want to go with this. But let's first talk about that point around the business side of investing for a moment, because you mentioned you had experience with SMAs, separately managed accounts, mutual funds, hedge funds, ETFs, um, all these different ways that one can have their assets managed. Talk about some of the distinctions and differences among those ways that people go to somebody to try to manage their money and how from a business side, it's very different across the different vehicles. When you're dealing with, when you're dealing with SMA, for example, you can handhold. When you're dealing with something that's marked to market second by second, like an ETF, it's a lot harder to do that, right? So, so talk about some of those differences there. Yeah, it's actually, it's, it's a great point, right? And so when you think about an SMA, separately managed accounts, these tend to be larger institutional accounts or you know, very high net worth individuals, or you're picking up assets through a platform. You know, for example, a, you know, back in the day, one of the largest platforms was Smith Barney, for example, right? It became part of Primerica and then ultimately American Express. But, you know, the, the dynamics of managing those accounts was very much a function of the relationship that you had with the individual investor or that you had with a platform manager. You would regularly participate in bake-offs where you were presenting in front of institutional platform, institutional you know, manager committees. And one of the more interesting things was that it was basically because of the high cost of changing accounts – it was basically built in that you would expect to receive an allocation for about three years unless there was evidence of extreme malfeasance or, or incompetence that emerged. And so that was one of the things that was so interesting was that it contributed to the much longer cycles that we would see in that time period where value would outperform or a particular category would outperform, for example, technology. It would lead to an allocation and then you would be basically free to manage that for a period of time with limited rebalancing coming from the investment committees. And sorry, not to interrupt. And practically speaking, that means that the volatility of your business's revenue is less than another way of somebody accessing your approach. 100%. And although I would say that it is less volatile and far more pro cyclical, right? So you would outperform, you would attract a ton of assets. And then your style would go out of favor and they'd slowly drain out, right? So, you know, one of the great ironies for me is I've been in multiple situations where I enter into a style of investing, that style of invest, because I'm drawn to it from a valuation characteristic or from a sentiment standpoint, and you actually do quite well, but you discover that you become a source of funds for those strategies that have begun to fail on the other side of it, right? So if you go back and you look at the dot-com cycle, 
one of the really interesting experiences for many small cap value managers was that they did not actually attract assets until somewhere around 2003, 2004. You know, the cycle began in 2000. Over the next three years, their outperformance would actually contribute to funds being withdrawn as it, you know, the lessons learned of rebalancing would ultimately suggest, okay, we need to put that money back with technology managers now that we're underweight in technology. That has to be the opportunity, right? And so you, you would have these very weird dynamics that you become aware of in that sort of pro-cyclical framework. But it does create a more stable business, for example, than ETFs where clients could very easily decide to fire me tomorrow and I have for either direct communications with them or you know, to, to stop them really in any way. Okay, so so this this is a really important point, especially for the the fintwit world, in that you don't know the underlying clients. You may know some, but you don't really know the underlying client base. You don't know when they're necessarily buying or selling because you don't have the visibility of the flows. And so the best thing you can do is try to communicate openly and publicly, and hope that those that are trading your funds or investing your funds are tracking what you're saying to maybe counter a mistaken notion of what might be happening in the here and now. Now, of course, the problem is, as you know, that leaves you open to a lot of criticism and vulnerability by people who don't really fully understand why you're framing things the way that you're framing them. I, I think that's a great point. I, I think that's a great way of, of saying it. It does often appear very promotional when really what you're often trying to do is educate. And you know, hopefully we have done a good job of being very clear that we're trying to spread education. We're very careful about releasing, you know, in, you know, trying to mention tickers, for example. We would never talk about, we think this asset class has, you know, it's, is going to return X over a forward period because it's simply an illegal statement under a regulatory regime. You know, so we really try to do that, but you're 100% correct that going out into the public eye raises the risks that you're perceived as effectively, you know, being overly promotional. Right. So, so it's a very fine line to walk, right? Because yep. part of this point about about being out there and being sort of a, a let's call it a fintwit influencer or whatever t- term you want to use, is that you not only have to counter mistaken narratives around your own approach, but you have to do so frequently because you're always going to get new people suddenly discovering your public persona that, you know, so, so it looks like you're constantly repeating yourself, but in reality, you're simply trying to level the playing field for newer followers as well. And I think that's missed by the older followers who are not understanding why the same message is being put out. Yeah, I, I definitely think there's a component of that. And I would also, though, highlight, that, you know, and, and you see that, right? So those who follow my feed, for example, will occasionally see somebody, you know, I have a lot of criticism, criticism for the Fed right now, for example. And people will often pop into my feed and say, well, you had no complaints when it was all going up. I'm like, oh my God, like, what are you talking about? Right. <laughs> you know, but you're correct that those who drop into your timeline on a new front basically think that they have discovered something and, and will often spend time, you know, in a gotcha type framework. Right. You know, right. well, you said X here, you know, you said the same thing there, you know, blah, blah, blah. It is, it is challenging, but it, it, on the flip side of it, Michael, I gotta be honest with you. Like this has been by far the most emotionally and psychologically rewarding aspect of my career because I've had the remarkable opportunity to interact with individuals directly that candidly you don't get in the other areas, right? Separate accounts, they have to be large, right? Institutional investing is even more so. 
hedge funds by definition, everybody has to be a at minimum accredited and most qualified investors, meaning that they have, you know, five million plus net worth, or in the case of working for something like Peter somebody like Peter Thiel, you know, you're obviously working directly for one individual who has wealth that is beyond most people's imagination, right? This has been phenomenal. I mean, I've met so many interesting people and you talk about FinTwit influencer I think one of the great ironies is that so many of us in the industry that have built up information networks over years and years and years are finding that Twitter is actually a platform that delivers far in excess of Bloomberg chat rooms or anything else. It's really incredible, the collective resource that you can tap into and the incredible source of psychological energy that is generated from interacting with people who are very active in their own finances where the decisions matter actually much more than they do at that extreme high end. No, and and I agree, but I think the, the, the counter to that is that you'll always have those people that don't get fully quite get the full picture of going to have it back to that point, the business side of, of investing as opposed to investing, right? So I'm an entrepreneur as you are, and even myself, I get people say to me, well, you know, you, you, your, your approach isn't working and it's uh, rules-based, not research-based. Oh, and by the way, uh, you should have seen this kind of environment coming. And then people will pile on you. So you'll have people that will understand and, and, and get what it is that you're doing as a business, but you'll have a lot of people also countering you. And the problem is that you can't counter them back because, as you noted, from a compliance perspective, you really can't respond to any criticisms around your your public vehicles. You can do that with SMAs one on one, but again, even the communication part of being a FinTwit influencer is limited. Well, so there's a part of me that that is incredibly sympathetic to that. There's also a part of me that says, you know, the rewards that accrue to success in our industry are so, you know, asymmetric to many other industries that that we're all entering into that with some knowledge, right? But on the flip side, I think you're right, and I think the the much bigger issue is actually the narrative around passive investing, right? right. You know, the the underlying dynamic that you continue to get is you can't even beat the S and P 500. It's like, oh my god, like do you realize how hard that is in this current in in this underlying framework, right? And and so you you do have I I think some of your complaints are quite legitimate, and I do think that it is important for people to understand the underlying market structure and how much it has changed and how much the dynamic of a metric, something like the S&P 500, which was originally designed as a benchmark, as that becomes actually an investable tool and an investable universe, that it influences itself, right? And that the complexities around that are incredibly difficult for people to understand and the risks associated with it as well. But you know, the one thing that I would say is, is that when you come out with a rational approach, I think when you do that, one of the challenges that you're you're struggling with, you mentioned the timing dynamic, but it's also so intuitive and people can grasp onto it so easily that it then very much becomes a question, okay, well, what are we going to do about it now? How are you going to immediately capitalize on this? And that's where the stochastic dynamics come in. And it's like, look, sometimes this is going to deliver a lot of excess return. Sometimes it's not. And you, you need to recognize that things like strategies that we deploy at Simplify that rely on buying convexity or buying protection in an environment where protection is bid and an environment in which protection is not working when expressed in derivative form for the very simple reason that it has become much more challenging to execute against those types of strategies in an environment where you're starting from a high level of implied volatility, for example. Those are all legitimate 
you know, concerns. And it doesn't take away the underlying dynamics. It just means it's going to take longer or it's going to be more difficult to prove the underlying thesis. Yeah, no, no, I, I think that's that's extremely well said. I 100% agree with you. And, you know, I had Bill Fleckenstein on one of these spaces, I want to say a month, month and a half ago, and he was very complimentary to you, Mike, about the focus that you've been putting on this this passive investing dynamic. I've I've in the past called this structural insanity, that you end up having these automatic flows irrespective of valuation that basically go into Vanguard large cap core. But I want you to lay out here for the audience this systemic risk that you think is out there with passive investing. And let's really define what passive investing is, first of all, because I have to tell you, I always bang my head on the wall when I see all these debates about passive outperforming active, when the data set for passive will include a lot of so-called active funds that have an R squared still of 99% against the benchmark. Well, I mean, in part though, right, that that is just going to be an outcome of a market that has market cap weighted, right? So by definition, this is, so, all right, so let's hit the point that you're asking for. Uh, the definition of passive, the best way to identify it or articulate it is to go back to the seminal paper by Bill Sharp, the inventor of the Sharp Ratio, also a, a key contributor to underlying components of modern portfolio theory under which most portfolios, whether you realize it or not, are constructed. So uh, just a huge titan of a figure in the industry. He defined passive investing as an investor who invests in proportion to the overall exposure of all the securities and all of the assets that are investable, right? And so in its extreme form, it's what's called a complete market, meaning that I own a share of your house in proportion to the share of everyone else's house, right? And I also happen to own shares of Coca-Cola and Apple and Microsoft, et cetera, in proportion to what everybody else owns. That's the simple definition or all-encompassing definition. We then get down to the practical implementation that many people have settled on, which is I'm going to own public equities in proportion to their market capitalizations. Right? So I'm going to mimic that which is easily available to me and do so in a manner that reflects the current market decision-making on it. There is a third component, and this is the one that I harp on that I think people underappreciated how important this assumption was. And so in Bill Sharp's 1991 paper, he defines a passive investor as one who never transacts. Right Now, just stop and think about that for a second. A passive investor is one who never transacts. How do they get into the market? Well, you can't. How do you get out of the market? Well, you can't. Right. So this is a magical model fantasy that doesn't exist. And in a world where last year alone, Vanguard took in something on the order of $400 billion, roughly a billion dollars every single day, you know, about a billion and a half every trading day, to argue that the definition of passive is one who does not transact seems the height of insanity to me. Yeah. And, it, and it's, I've heard you, Mike, in prior podcasts talk about certain key years where this passive dynamic really went vertical, I think 2006. And I was making a point that every strategy has three components, right? Your signal, your look back period, and then your opportunity set. It's very hard to beat the S&P when the S&P is the only game in town, which is a, a result of all of this passive investing, or at least the perception that the S&P is the passive in benchmark, right, to kind of go with. What happened in 2012 that changed some of the dynamics? Because for whatever reason, just around the time that QE3 started, I would argue a lot of these bizarre correlations and distortions really started to to manifest around then. 
Well, so, you know, again, you're hitting on a particular date and it's always dangerous to, to derive things from that date. So I'm actually going to try to give people a couple more dates, right, that I think are really, really critical in this evolution. The first one I would point to is 1994, when the SEC, under pressure from the growing derivatives market and also the passive investor, the passive market, the vanguards, et cetera, of the world, convened what was called the Derivative Committee and changed some rules around how derivatives could be used on Wall Street. And importantly, at that point in time, even though Vanguard was only about 1% or passive was only about 1% to 1.5% of the market, they were already beginning to experience significant logistical challenges. So, you know, this is one of the benefits of just being old and having a very good memory. I used to be shaped like an elephant. Now I just try to retain a memory like one. In, in 1994, there was a series of articles that were coming out that were highlighting the challenges that Vanguard and others like them were having in terms of matching their benchmark because as they bought the smallest stocks or the smaller stocks in the S&P 500, they were actually distorting the prices as they were transacting. And as a result, they were experiencing tracking error. In 1994, the solution set was introduced that allowed Vanguard and other index funds to use futures to enter into the market. So your money, instead of going into Vanguard and being used to buy the individual securities, would increasingly be deployed into Vanguard to buy the S&P futures. And then the problem of replication of the S&P 500 was shifted to the street at large. Crazily enough, this actually caused the dot-com bubble. Right. So when you talk about the distortions that happened in 2012, I would highlight that they began much, much earlier in the process. So this became aware to me. I became aware of this and not as in 2015. Right. So understand this 21 years later that I'm starting to figure out this sort of stuff. But what was happening is when you talk about buying or replicating the S&P 500, because this was originally created as a tool that was designed to measure or monitor the market as compared to participate in the market, the use of total market cap made sense, right? It didn't matter if Bill Gates owned the shares or if they were truly publicly traded. But that's not the real world. And so in the mid-1990s, the unique feature that existed, particularly within U.S. markets, was that you had large market cap components of the S&P 500 with relatively low floats, Right. So 50 percent of Microsoft was owned internally when Vanguard and others went out to try to buy Microsoft in proportion to its market cap. They meant they were buying that meant they were buying twice as much Microsoft as actually existed. And as a result, if you try to buy twice as much of something as we're seeing in today's commodity driven world, the prices rise. Right. Creating outperformance, which in turn, because we didn't have factors like passive participation or low float funds at the time. We just didn't have the math to do that sort of stuff easily or the, more accurately, the calculation capabilities. That overlapped with another sector, relatively new IPOs, which were inevitably technology companies. Right, And so the passive 1.0 dynamics caused, in my opinion, the early rumblings and dynamics of the technology bubble. In 2004, they changed the structure of the indices to be float weighted as compared to market cap weighted. And in my view, S&P and others who made these changes dramatically misrepresented the impact of this. So they would take the revised weighting scheme and apply it to the security prices that existed in the past, 
rather than saying, hey, here was the impact of the float factor. Let's adjust that to see what the importance of this change is. And I, I've talked about this. I've put out various charts that illustrate it, et cetera. There's just an incredible unique divergence that occurred between stocks that had full float and stocks that had low float that created a lot of the opportunity for things like the small cap value revolution in 2000. When they changed it in 2004, 2005, what they effectively bought was capacity for passive to grow. And then in 2006, a really critical change came with what was called, I'm blanking on the name of the legislation, I think it's the Pension Protection Act, but it was it, it introduced the idea of 401ks being opt out rather than opt in. And this is whole, part of the whole nudge and ownership society type dynamic. There was a recognition that when you decided to go to work for a company, you had to choose to participate in a 401k. You had to voluntarily say, I am going to reduce my take-home pay in order to take advantage of this tax-deferred method of savings. In 2006, that changed, and it became an opt-out framework. So in other words, instead of choosing to get in, you had to make an active choice not to save in that manner. That then introduced its own series of challenges, which is just that most people, when they were put into a 401k, faced with any number of choices, would often panic and just say, I don't want to choose right now, leave it in a cash money market fund, and then I'll come back to it, and they would never come back. And so the level of cash investment was very high in the system. 2006, again, that changed. They introduced what was called the Qualified Default Investment Alternative, where a HR manager would effectively say, okay, this is going to be the default choice for those who are automatically opted in. It ceased to be a mutual fund, a money market fund, and it became typically a balanced fund. One of the most popular choices, for example, would be the Leg Mason Value Trust, for example, or the products coming out of PIMCO, right, where there's a total return type product, a balanced fund of various fund, of various types. These became the default choices in 2006. In 2012, what you're referring to is that changed further and a relatively new innovation, what are called life cycle funds or targeted aid funds, became a qualified default investment alternative. And so what that meant is starting in 2012, basically everybody who got a job or who entered into a 401k, and remember that's almost anyone who now goes into corporate employment, when you entered into that, you were automatically directed to a target date fund that basically matched your anticipated retirement age and a broad market index like the Vanguard Total Market Index and a broad bond fund like the Vanguard Total Bond Fund, both domestically and internationally, would be purchased in proportions that were reflective of what's, what was called a glide path tied to your age. So that was a really critical change and a very long-winded way of, of highlighting that dynamic. But from that point, these target date funds have become the default investment for almost all participants, roughly 85 cents of each incremental dollar that now goes into a 401k goes into a target date fund. And that creates a, a significant distortion over time because that's really, I think, from everything you're saying, the source of, again, that term structural insanity, right? That if 85 cents constantly are going to these these passive equity and bond, but more so equity, I would argue, allocations, well, then because these are market cap weighted, it creates a self-fulfilling momentum and outperformance cycle against everything else that is not grabbing that 85 cents for every dollar, 
And then I would argue that actually creates a really toxic environment for trying to create new strategies because if everything goes to those market cap weighted vehicles and those market cap weighted vehicles are extraordinarily cheap from a fee perspective, well, home bias, people will allocate more to that. And then available heuristic would argue that everybody considers the market, the S&P. Well, then how do you possibly be innovative if you're compared against that which is completely unrelated to your approach, but is having this constant structural bid underneath? We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. No, it's 100% correct, right? And I would go a step further and just say the big challenge that you run in this industry is that you have a continuously leaky bucket, right? So clients leave by virtue of aging out of the appropriate position, right? So, so people die, people retire, people start taking distributions as they get older. If you are competing basically for those 15 cents of the 85 cent of, of the of the pie as compared to the total picture by definition your your bucket is going to be super leaky and you're going to be faced with a continuous loss of capital and the need to continually sell and so what you're highlighting is the money is coming in and pushing things in proportion to its adjusted market cap its float weighted market cap on the flip side of that, those securities that are actively selected, thoughtfully selected, are under a continual decumulation process tied to that leaky bucket phenomenon. Right. And, and this is what I think is being missed by, again, a lot of the FinTwit community when they look at strategies that charge more than five basis points, right? Which is that if you are trying to compete for that 15 cents, in order to simply survive to keep your funds open, given the ongoing expenses of having an ETF, having a mutual fund, you have to charge something to actually keep your game long enough for what Eric Balchunas would say is the, the shiny object moment, right? Where your strategy really kind of stands out in a big way, but you have to have enough revenue on a small base of trying to get 15 cents from that total, total dollar to, to survive, right? So it becomes a very hard fight if you are especially a smaller ETF issuer company because you need to stay alive. You need to charge higher fees. But if you charge higher fees, everyone compares you against the five basis point S&P type product. Well, it's actually worse than that, right? Because those who are making these large, broad allocation selections, right, the creation of the 401k program, for example, are increasingly bound by the dynamics of liability management. And this would have been disastrously explicitly encoded through what was called the Department of Labor's fiduciary rule, which was kind of a 2016-2017 phenomenon. I know you remember it. Some people in the in the audience are going to be too young to remember it. Hopefully most are not. But you know, that was a classic example of legislation that was written by Vanguard that taps into this, you know, well, of course, it makes perfect sense. Why wouldn't your 
RIA or corporation be viewed as a fiduciary that bears a responsibility to you in the choices or selections that they make, right? And the the dynamics that that established was it created conditions under which an RIA or a corporation could be sued for the excess fees of any product that they offered to their employees. And what was so scary about the DOL fiduciary rule was that it actually also made them liable for the underperformance, right? Like once you do that, you've just written the death knell on any form of, you know, creative or innovative approaches. Right. It completely kills innovation. Right. Exactly. So thank God that didn't actually go through. But I will tell you that the industry itself pivoted sharply in reaction to that. And so many allocators, many RIAs, many corporations are basically following the rules of the DOL fiduciary rule, even if it is not the letter of the law. They just would prefer to to be safe. There's also a cottage industry of trial lawyers who go around cottage, meaning mansion, industry of trial lawyers who travel around suing corporations and their 401k plans. For exactly those reasons, even though they are not necessarily tied by a regulatory framework, it's often easier to just settle this stuff, right? And you know, the the the, the most extreme example I can cite is in 2019, Fidelity was forced to settle a class action lawsuit brought by its employees, really by a lawyer who found a single disgruntled employee for offering Fidelity funds in their 401k plan. It's amazing when you start thinking through these things, going back to that point about being the fin to an influencer, how you have to counter people who don't know this stuff in the background because they're not involved in the business side of investing to to use to basically justify, you know, our own existence as, you know, people in the arena trying to create different strategies and get people to to think differently when these these underlying dynamics, which are not very popularized, are not known to consider context. I think it's important to to try to get that out there and for people to think about this stuff before just sort of criticizing anybody trying to do something different in this business. But I want to go back real quick to this active-passive discussion because you mentioned Sharp's paper. I've often referenced the, the Grossman-Stiglitz paradox, yep. which, right, from 1980. So for those that don't know, I'm going to read it directly from Wikipedia just to make it easier. But Grossman-Stiglitz paradox is a paradox that basically argues that perfectly informationally efficient markets – are an impossibility since if prices perfectly reflected available information, there's no profit to gathering information, in which case there would be no reason to trade and markets would eventually collapse. So at the core, the idea basically is you can't have passive without active, you can't have active without passive, hence the paradox. But it is interesting, Mike, that even though that's a logic crux, that active still seemingly is having a challenge, broadly speaking, right? I think even even this year, you could argue, man, futures have done well, but for the most part, active strategies have, have had a hard go. And I think one of the arguments for active is that they tend to manage the downside better than better than passive beta. Let's let's put this context of active versus active versus passive in terms of market dynamics of this year. Because for active managers to really thrive, and I know this is a lot of also what you do at Simplify, you need you know, you need to focus on the convexity, trying to get a little bit of that of that tail risk out of the equation. But if you have tail risk seemingly in everything because everything's correlating the same way, it, it in some ways becomes even harder to be active to manage through that. Just talk about how this year may have changed or altered the dynamic of active versus passive and how people should think about managing in such a weird environment. 
Well, so so I think that there's a couple of components there, right? One is is the underlying dynamic that you hit on this idea of the challenges of innovation or the challenges of running a business within the space, right? So when you think about the dynamics of surviving to live or experience 2022, you had to successfully navigate the extraordinary bull market in the S&P 500 that occurred, give or take, from the beginning part of 2016 through the tail end of 2021, right? With any number of reasons and any number of arguments, most of which are best articulated by guys like John Hussman, for why the market should not be where they are. Right. And so you had to survive that process. Well, five years is, is a ridiculous time period to tell people, just wait, I, I promise you it'll work out. Right. Let, let alone five months, by the way, given the way people's attention spans are so short. Correct. Right. So so when you have that type of dynamic, inevitably, it, you know, just think about it from a predator prey, you know, the rabbits and wolves sort of component. You ultimately have to adopt mimic, mimicry strategies, right? You have to say, all right, I'm going to suspend my rules and become more like the S&P. I'm going to reduce my shorting. I'm going to do all sorts of things so that I can survive this process, right? Once you've done that, you have an element of Stockholm syndrome where, you, you know, switching back, the, the, you know, the, the road to Damascus is littered with the corpses of people who tried to turn back, right? You, you know, brilliant, brilliant investors you know, have have literally blown up over the past several years trying to inject a degree of rationality, right? So to, to, to get to this point was really, really challenging. The second dynamic that I would, would hit that, you know, kind of addresses why this begins to break is, you know, you I know your strategies, for example, will rotate between equities and bonds and presume a degree of correlation or negative correlation between the two that is largely borne out in the historical data for the past, give or take, 25 years. Right. They basically deflect the safety trade. It's really in treasuries in particular because historically, and that was on my pinned tweet, right, in those big drawdowns in equities, usually treasuries will outperform. They can still be down, but not down to the same magnitude as what we've seen this year against the magnitude of the stock market drawdown. And so so that is actually what's happened, right? I mean, if I look at the performance of the S&P relative to the performance of, say, a 30-year bond or a 10-year bond to, to use a more liquid instrument, it, you know, the S&P has outperformed to the downside. You would have been better off in bonds. But a portfolio that tried to protect yourself against the S&P by running a simultaneous position in bonds and equities has had the worst performance of any year basically since 1970, if I remember correctly. So, you know, that like that's cold comfort. Congratulations. The 40 percent of your portfolio or the 50 percent of your portfolio in bonds or switching into bonds reduce some of your losses. But nobody really wants to hear that, you know, uh, that component and many strategies. And this is an argument that I got into on, on Twitter a couple of days ago. Many strategies had actually pursued levered exposure to bonds, recognizing that the bond bull market and the positive correlation that you are that you highlighted created conditions where the optimal portfolio, when you're being paid to take insurance as you were in bonds, the optimal portfolio becomes a levered expression. Which means, by the way, what risk parity, right? From yeah, that's, right, that's exactly right. right. So this is part of the point that, you know, somebody made the observation, and you can go back and find it on my, my tweet thread, you know, that the only reason why anyone allocated to bonds was to reduce risk. Right. Over the past, you know, give or take 20 years. And, and like, just, that's just not true. 
right? You can't have a strategy like risk parity where you lever grow to prominence, where you lever the exposure to bonds and actually truly believe that that's the case. You've, you've, you've literally risk parity is raising the risk profile of bonds and recognizing that that makes it an equivalent or superior source of diversified return. So, you know, you have all sorts of interesting things that develop. And this year has seen a lot of those unwind. And it's been very challenging, I think, for people. Yeah. And 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 I'm not going to rehash all the, the black swan stuff, which a lot of people say that my comment was not a black swan. Anybody could have seen it coming. I keep pushing back that you can see that stocks and bonds both fall. That doesn't mean that you can see the way with which it occurs. And oftentimes it's the sequence and interaction that matters more than the endpoints because most people don't hold to the endpoint, right? They react off of the path in between the endpoints. Now, well, the other thing, right? And, and the other aspect of this flight to safety phenomenon, right. which has been so remarkable this year, and we, again, it's bonds are overvalued, treasuries are overvalued, stocks are overvalued. So, yes, no disagreements that both should have fallen. Again, it's about the way it occurs. That's, that's the dilemma. But the other, the other aspect of this is why is it that? there's a a correlation because there is a causation in that flight to safety in that when you have heightened volatility in equities, credit spreads tend to widen, which means that the market views or investors view heightened stock market volatility as increased default risk for companies. That's why you end up having this movement towards ultimately the default less asset, which is government treasuries. I mean, that's that's the that's the whole reason the flight to safety trade exists. What has made this year so frustrating is that this a large part of this sell-off in both stocks and bonds really had nothing to do with credit spreads. It was a pure duration move. Well, so so I actually think that there's, you know, again, for me, all, all roads lead to this active-passive dynamic, right? So many are familiar within equity markets how an equity index rewards momentum, right? Those assets that go up the most in price receive a disproportionate weighting within the index. That in turn means that the additional money, the next dollar that comes in is going to allocate more to those stocks that have gone up, right? That feels very straightforward. It's easy to understand how a market cap weighted index structure is momentum reinforcing. The irony is the same thing happens when you build a bond index that is market cap weighted or issuer weighted, right? Because there's two ways you can get large within an index. One is that the price that you issue a ton of bonds. The second is, is that the price of the bond goes up a lot. And in a falling interest rate environment, the bonds that go up most in price are those that are of longest duration, right? and that have relatively low coupons to start with, right? They have what's called the greatest duration sensitivity, right? Something that pays you a 15% coupon every year is not going to change its price nearly as much as something that pays only 25, 25 basis points or is a zero coupon, right? Where all of the value is determined at the end. And so what actually happened within the bond indices, and this is particularly true within high yield, um, to a certain extent, investment grade, et cetera, is that the duration sensitivity exploded as the coupons fell further and further, and those with those components of the index that had the longest tenor rose in relative pricing in the index. Right. So you. Right. So I mean, so I mean, it's, it's rewarding the the most highly indebted companies with more assets. Well, so so that's actually a different component, right? So that's the issuer dynamic. So that's one way you get large in the index is you issue a ton of paper. 
and and yes, there should be a negative selection criteria, and there's actually a somewhat positive selection criteria associated with that. But what I'm actually highlighting is something different, which is a duration extension that occurs in the construction of a passive bond index, right? Which means this dynamic of in a falling interest rate environment, things that go up most in price become a larger portion of the index. As money flows into bond funds, they get bought most. That causes further distortion. The extreme version of this, for example, is the Austrian century bond, right? Which was trading at, you know, give or take, I think it has peaked 240% of par, you know, at, at 240. Every dollar that came in tried to buy two and a half times roughly as much of that Austrian bond as actually had been had been issued, creating a constant greater fool dynamic. When interest rates begin to rise, however, that bond then falls the most in price, dragging the bond indices down in the manner that we've seen. So this point that you're making about the duration sensitivity or the characteristic of what's caused bonds to sell off, having been the actual duration itself, is fairly unique in history. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. And it's also one that presumably can't last too long without some very serious consequences, right? It's it's because at the end of the day, we're talking about what's the backbone of capitalism, which is the cost of capital, right? So to the extent that you have the, in particular, long-duration treasuries, the 30-year keep rising, that no different than the argument that the cure to high prices is high prices and commodities, while the cure to to yield is 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 high yield, right? To high yield is high yield from that perspective. If if things maybe are starting to bottom out in terms of the relationship of duration, risk on, risk off dynamics, whatever it is, does that suggest that the economy is going to maybe start normalizing? In other words, if this stock and bond sell off, this coordinated drawdown is over, and you start seeing some historical relationships come back in. Do you think that's indicative of normalization beyond this high inflation environment that we're, everyone's talking about? So, well, I think there's a couple of things that that are really important in that, right? The first is when you say normalize, I, I just... I, yeah, it's like, what's normal, right? <laughs> I get it, right? The second is, is that unfortunately, and this is one of the areas where I think the Fed is making a primary error, and we're beginning to see that play through, you know, the concept of reflexivity... Most people are familiar with at this point, right? George Soros' theory that the markets actually then influence outcomes. If Tesla is able to issue billions of dollars in shares, it improves Tesla's ability to ultimately succeed, right? The same thing plays through in bond markets, and people spend less time thinking about it. So it actually doesn't really matter that much whether credit spreads widened as interest rates rose so much. Many of the marginal companies within the credit universe can't afford the higher duration price, the higher risk-free interest rate price that is now priced into their bonds. And as a result, the increase in interest rates in turn is creating its own credit risk. 
And that's what we're really beginning to see. That's why you hear me speaking out so vociferously against what the Fed is doing, because the Fed is creating a credit crisis. And and I think Michael Howell of Cross Border Cap has been on that. And certainly I think there's a interesting argument for that to be the case, because you can you can make the point that just because of the very dynamics of volatility and commodities, that as quickly as it went up, it could come down very quickly as well, which means the Fed may actually end up over tightening because they're misreading the speed, right? That that potentially could be permeating throughout inflation. Yeah, the narratives around high food prices or on high oil are still very much out there, right? And the Fed is obviously responding to that. But the last three, four weeks has been a pretty aggressive about face, right? In in wheat and soybeans, oil has been volatile, but obviously it's quite a bit off its highs. Do you think this is one of those things where the Fed maybe is, is again, I go back to this point that they're maybe misreading the speed with which this might resolve itself without them actually aggressively hiking rates? Well, not, not only do I think that they're misreading it, I think they misunderstand the fundamental dynamic, right? So, and and this, you know, I, I'm in the process of, I've written an editorial, we're, we're debating the best way to release it. But if you just mechanically think through many of the components of what's happening and going on in markets in relation to the increase in interest rates and the Fed's desire to tighten conditions to, to reduce inflationary conditions, they play through in a variety of ways, right? So, so let's just, let's take high wheat prices, for example, right? The natural result from high wheat prices should be far increasing the amount of acreage that they want to plow and, and create for additional wheat harvesting. Okay. The cure for high prices is high prices. The problem is, in order to secure that acreage, I have to borrow to either buy the land or borrow to obtain the additional seed to plant or borrow to obtain the additional equipment required to plant or borrow to lock in the price of diesel, assuming I can profitably engage in wheat farming operations because drying the wheat once it's been harvested, et cetera, all of that has cost, et cetera, right? So when you start, and it's like really natural gas more than anything else, but when you start thinking about each of those individual components, every single one of those has financing dynamics to it. And as the Fed is raising the price of financing, that's actually creating conditions that make it more difficult to add supply. Oh, I, I love you say this because I, let me not to interrupt you, but I've, I've made that very strange point over the last several months that I can make an argument myself that the Fed should keep rates lower to actually encourage more extraction of commodities because you have to finance these highly levered operational activities to actually have more commodities out there. Correct. And then let's go a step further and recognize that every problem that we just articulated is harder for smaller organizations than it is for larger organizations. Right. And 100%. Right. That's, that's really critical because what the Fed is doing is creating conditions that are functionally identical to the dynamics of the pandemic shutdowns which was devastating to small business, whereas large business in many ways was very well positioned to expand into the vacancies that were created. And I'll add to that real quick on that small business point, and I've made this, this point many times, the, the, the real way to solve supply chain disruptions is with competition. Competition comes from those small businesses, and now you've increased the cost of capital for the small businesses to compete. You, you've, well, and disproportionately increased. Right. right? Because the larger you know, industrial farms, they actually benefit from the tighter credit spreads on a relative basis, right? They're better positioned. They all need to optimize across a variety of, of components. 
the irony is, is the optimization that occurs as you horizontally integrate, as you create larger and larger organizations, it, you know, this is an area of economics that I would just argue is, you know, because it's so far beyond what you get in high school or in your introductory college courses. And when you start to think about the formation or dynamics of a cost curve, when you highlight those small businesses, right, those small businesses basically represent both kind of approaches and small incremental players that fill in a cost curve, right? So if, if you think about the, the real challenge in a totalitarian system where you have a single state enterprise that produces all of X, right, if you try to run that in kind of a very simple market model, the clearing price for any good or service that is created by that monopoly has to cover the total cost of operations. And if it has a, a, a pseudo profit component, it's running a regulated profit, but it has to include that as well. Right. So the clearing price for supply is at the extreme version of that monopolist. Right. Their total costs have to be covered. If you start introducing smaller players, they can function as basically flex. Right. And they can introduce new approaches that broaden out the cost curve, introduce lower cost dynamics in which they're able to operate under the umbrella that's created by that higher cost entity. And as they continue to expand within that, they slowly push out the larger player and create conditions under which prices can fall and benefit from productivity. When you take them out, you create the exact opposite. You actually create conditions of increased pricing volatility when you have the very large players because you need to effectively shift the cost curve more to cover the next player's total cost, right? And so like everything we're doing is completely backwards relative to what we're trying to accomplish here. The answer here is very simply, the Fed should be operating under effectively the Hippocratic Oath, right? First, do no harm. And they're doing tremendous harm. Okay, well, but let me add a little color to that too. But the, I, I would, the only dilemma there realistically is that you, you can't selectively destroy it. Right when you're already at a very highly levered starting point, the problem is if you if you raise rates to destroy the malinvestment, you're going to have a lot of collateral damage. The, I, I would respond in two two forms. Right, two wrongs don't make a right. So let's let's recognize the policy error last year, which I would broadly agree with you that the Fed should have been more aggressive in attempting to normalize in a slow and controlled fashion, that might have been helpful. Withdrawing some support for the mortgage financing space and an environment in which the purchase of single family homes transitioned from, and I think this is a really important, right? This is one of the things that I keep trying to emphasize for people. There was an unequivocal increase in the value of suburban single family homes in the pandemic, right? That was an outward shift in the utility associated with a large single family home. Anyone pretending that this was just speculation, et cetera, is completely missing the point. The ability to get to local areas like a Tennessee or a Florida where your child could continue to attend school rose significantly in value. And as a result, people responded to those economic incentives. Right now, should the Fed have begun to back away from the subsidy that it was providing to the mortgage market? Probably. But the solution to that is to address those issues, not to turn around and start randomly swinging a hatchet. Now, I'll add something real quick to that, which is that, and, and we all know this in, in, in the room, I think, that the reality is a lot of that uneducated speculation, which I was ranting on all throughout last year, started really coming out February of 2021, long before the Fed did a damn thing or even thought about 
hiking rates. So I guess, I guess, and to, to that kind of goes to your point, Mike, a little bit, which is that, you know, they've been hiking rates, but the reality is it's a hatchet to that, that problem. But even before them hiking rates, there was already a lot of devastation starting. So in other words, I would argue that you, a lot of this has been resolving itself for some time, even without the Fed's intervention. Well, well, I, I, I think what Mike, what you're alluding to is the idea that it ultimately still goes back to this passive. It, it, it doesn't industry. still go back to anything, right? It is multifaceted. So when, when you say you look squarely at the foot of the Fed, you blame them entirely for it. That's just not fair. Real quick, real, real quick. In, sorry, in, fairness, yeah. in fairness, I would say, and I don't want to get into because uh, we're coming up on the yeah. on the end of this too here, but what I would say, it's, it's, it, I agree with Mike. It's always more complicated. And there's always more players, and we can argue it's the Fed. I'd argue it's more Congress because Congress has oversight of the Fed. I mean, that to me is more the the real point of that. But, but Mike, I want to give you the final word because I, I think this is a good conversation for another space, which I'd love to do with both of you because I do think it's worth peeling the onion a little bit and and getting more nuanced with this because there's one camp that argues the Fed is the one that creates the conditions for all the stupidity that we've seen and malinvestment, and there's unequivocally a very valid case for that. There's another argument that says that it's more than just the Fed, and as is often the case – I think in reality, it's always more complex than a single uh, soundbite, if, that, if that's fair to, to That would be the point that I would emphasize. And I would, you know, I, I would go a step further and say the fact that we are, like, for example, alluding to the Fed is supposed to be the adults in the room. No, we're all supposed to be adults because guess what? Every single person in here is an adult, right? And we're supposed to take responsibility for ourselves. The irony and the thing that I'm trying to point out and what I'm emphasizing is, is that we have increasingly given up that responsibility. We've abrogated our responsibility to invest our capital to a 401k plan that says, how old are you? We have said, you know what? I don't need to worry about misallocation of capital because the Fed is the adult in the room, right? They must know what they're doing. You, you, can make, you can make the same case about the, about the government with the way voted, right? right? So same same right. argument, right? But, but these are all – look, I'm not suggesting that we need to return to the rugged individualism of the American frontier and all the you know, false romantic notions associated with that. But we've got to stop turning around and saying it's their fault. No, it's our fault. I think that's, a, that's actually a really good way to end it because I agree with that. I had that poll a month and a half, two months ago. I said who's to blame for high inflation? And the options were Powell, Biden, or us, the voter, right? And the reality is it is it is us, right? Because unless you have people actually countering and saying, no, you have to hike rates down. I remember Greenspan did an interview when he was doing his book tour for the age of turbulence. He said he never once had any single politician asking him to raise rates. I mean, who's to blame? The waiter that's serving the food that you're overweight or you the one that eats the food? Right. Well, I think that's an interesting kind of discussion. Right. Yeah, no, I know. And, and by the way, I agree. I would love to have a conversation with, and we can do it in a much longer form. You know, and as long as we're all able to reduce our emotional content to it, I think it will turn out really well, because I do think that this is actually an area that I really want to help people understand and explore this idea that effective mistakes of last year ironically create conditions where what might have been the right policy last year are not the right policy this year. And we're dealing with issues that are far more important than does the Fed hike rates by 75 basis points or 25 basis points. What we actually need to do is acknowledge that 40 years into the Reagan revolution, where the articulation is the problem is always the government, that's just not true anymore. Right? We have abrogated all of our responsibility to large corporations, to the market, to the, this idea that everybody else can solve the problem if we just free the path. 
There are market failures. There are political failures. There's failures of education. There's failures of voting. And the simple reality is, is that we need a whole bunch of adults in the room to basically sit down and say, we're going to start making some hard choices where we first agree what the problems or the outcomes that we're trying to achieve as a society are. We can't even agree where we're trying to get to, much less which map to use. I blame Twitter for, for that. It's hard to get real adults in the room when algorithms are simply keeping people in their echo chambers and making those echo chambers louder with algorithms catering to the confirmation bias, which we'll save that for another day. But this was a Phenomenal conversation. Everybody, please make sure you follow Michael Green. Mike, I want to give you a chance to maybe just talk briefly about Simplify, if there's anything you want to mention about the firm or, or the approach that you guys take. Well, so Simplify is an ETF firm that was launched in September of 2020. We took advantage of a regulatory change that was introduced called the derivative rule that smoothed the path to offering the types of derivative strategies that I've historically focused on in the institutional space smooth the path of getting those into ETF-type products. It is incredible to me to experience um, the ways that that can positively influence, whether it's from constructing portfolios that have degrees of downside protection or whether it is in giving access to products. You know, I'll, I'll name a ticker, for example, which my partner Harley Bassman created as an interest rate hedge. You know, some of the the... the ways that that liberates the the introduction of those types of tools has an incredible impact on portfolio construction and it gives people the ability to do stuff that they just couldn't do before right the, the pfix for example i just want to focus on this because it's one of these things that that blows my mind my oldest son is actually doing some work associated with us at simplify worked to develop a a, a ratio analysis of, of how much you would actually have to own of this interest rate hedge if you wanted to convert a floating rate mortgage to a fixed rate mortgage. Right? Now, just stop and think about that for a second. Because all of a sudden, instead of having to negotiate with your bank, do I refinance my mortgage? Do I move from a fixed rate to a floating rate? Do I lock into those components? And this is much more true on the commercial side. You know, We're now starting to see people use the tool that we've introduced to actively manage their commercial mortgage portfolios. Like it's, it's just so gratifying and so encouraging to watch people do that sort of stuff and to be able to sit on the sidelines and say, hey, we've created things that are then set out into the wild and people are using them in ways that we'd never even imagined. You know, So the, the easiest way to find out about the stuff that we do, we spend an awful lot of time on educating. We offer our own podcast where Harley and I regularly interview guests, debate macroeconomic topics, et cetera. I try to be active on Twitter as much as possible, probably more than I should be, to Michael's point of it, blame us. But Simplify is, is, has been an incredible experience. It's run by a, a fantastic Austin execution team, largely out of PIMCO. And it's just been a lot of fun to watch us grow from you know effectively zero and a cold start to today. We're about a billion and a half dollars in total AUM, offering roughly 20 different products across different portfolio needs, everything ranging from fixed income to interest rate hedging to equity exposure. And look us up at www.simplify.us. And by the way, for those that, that may roll their eyes or, or, or critique, you know, that, that this last point about, you know, when I said give give you give Mike a chance to talk about Simplify, the reality is everyone here is also trying to grow their own business. And everyone's always trying to spread the message in terms of how they view not just the world, but how they think other investors should consider allocating and offering strategies for that, I think is important and putting a highlight on that. 
is important. So everybody that's here, again, make sure you follow Mike and thank everybody for joining. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate it. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.